If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study through the Word. So Jesus' life and ministry now are coming to a close. His days here on earth are numbered, and, and he is living truly in the shadow of the cross. The nation has rejected him. And now the offer of salvation is being pressed on an individual basis that every single person has the responsibility to respond to that invitation of deliverance, to that invitation of salvation in Christ. And, and so we saw how Jesus uh, now gave the parables uh, of the mustard seed and of the leaven talking about how mankind is going to always corrupt anything that it touches. Man is corrupted by sin, and anything that man touches ultimately is also going to be corrupted. And the church, the institution of the new covenant, it is also going to be corrupted. So Jesus is letting us know in advance that the new covenant is not going to be different than the old covenant in that aspect. You remember that the Jews had been given the law. They were God's people, but corruption had entered in. We see the high priesthood and how Annas and Caiaphas, and they were running the money changing, and they were running also the selling of the animals and, and all at exorbitant prices, the corruption that was there. We see the hypocrisy of uh, the Pharisees and of the religious leaders, the pride that had entered in and the corruption. And, and though they had been given the Holy Scriptures, and the scriptures were a portrait of Christ complete with a timeline of his arrival when he came, they didn't recognize him. And so we see here that in the new covenant, now the church age, he says that there is going to also be corruption that is going to take place. And, and the mustard seed was the parable about the, um, the abnormal growth and how large the, the church is going to get, but it won't be the true church. Because in its outskirts, will, even the birds of the air will come and make their residence, will, uh, will take up and dwell there. And he talked about the parable of the leaven, how the leaven speaks of the corrupt worship and how even within the church itself, the doctrines are going to become corrupt. And there are going to be those that say they're Christians that are actually not Christians at all. And all types of false doctrine and leaven is going to enter into the, the church itself. The Bible teaches us that in the end days that the church is going to get to a place, the church, listen to this, is going to get to a place where it doesn't even want the word of God anymore. That the church itself doesn't want sound doctrine. It's not going to want to know the truth. Instead, it wants what it wants. It, it wants license to feel good about itself without the conviction and without the morals that God has given. And so it says that, that those people are going to no longer stand for sound doctrine. So what they're going to do is they're going to change their leaders out. And instead of having leaders that will teach the truth and will teach the word, they're going to move them out and they're going to bring in teachers now that will preach to itching ears and make them feel good. 
And these things here we see have taken place right in our generation, right in our lifetime. We've, we've seen the, the falling away that has taken place. And, and that can cause us to say, oh my gosh, oh no, look at what's happening. The church is falling apart. Or we can look at it and go, check. <laughs> it's exactly what Jesus has said was going to happen. We're right on track. The Lord is getting close to returning. And, and that's exactly what we're seeing today. So Jesus gave us a warning on that and told us about this new covenant in the church age and what we can expect uh, from it. And you remember that there was a man then that, that asked him, Lord, are there many that are saved? And I love the way that Jesus so oftentimes would take these hypothetical, theoretical questions that are being asked, but, but so oftentimes underlying it is a deep personal issue. There's a real question of the heart. Oftentimes as pastors will have people come and they'll, they'll ask us an issue question. But the reason why they're asking the issue question is because they actually have a personal connection to that issue. And rather than just saying, hey, here's my situation and, and all, they, they start with this issue question. And Jesus just pushes that aside and he goes right to the heart of the matter. He just ministers to the person. He says, strive to enter in through the narrow gate. Strive to enter in through the narrow gate. Striving, swimming upstream, our culture. Uh, is pushing us away from God. And when we are going to enter into that kingdom, we are going to be swimming upstream and against uh, the current. He says there are many uh, who will seek to enter in and will not be able. There's going to be many people that don't believe that you have to go in through the narrow gate. There's going to be many people that, uh, that believe that they're spiritual. They believe that they're good people. They take now life on their own terms. They create their own rationale. And, and they believe that all good people go to heaven. And they believe that they're going to heaven. And so it says that there are many people, many people, are going to seek to enter in and are not going to be able to enter in. Because when they come into the presence of the Lord, the Lord is going to close the door to the kingdom of heaven. And they're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I did a lot of good things. I was nice. I, did you see the charity events that I hosted uh, and how I help poor people and how I unify people? I did so many good things. And the Lord's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, you don't enter in because of the things that you've done. You enter in because your sins were washed away. It's the things, not the good things that you did. It's the bad things that you did. And those are the things that are going to keep you out of the kingdom. And no amount of good deeds are going to take away the bad things that you've done. Only Christ can wash away the sins off of your soul. And so he warns them, strive, enter in, you. And you'll remember that, that now as he you know, thinks about, Herod tells them, he's told that Herod is looking for him and that, and that Herod is after him. And, and you'll remember that Jesus wasn't worried about that. Jesus was never pushed by anxiousness or fear. He rested in the timetable of God. That God was leading him step by step. He knew that he had an appointment with the cross. 
He knew that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He knew that he was sent to rescue us and sinners from our sin. And he knew that that cross was in Jerusalem when he was in Caesarea Philippi. And, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And he tells him that I must go to Jerusalem now, and I must be betrayed into the hands of men. And he began his trek towards the, the crucifixion. And now as he is moving, just a short period of time before making his triumphal entry and into the final week, the holy week, and before his crucifixion, he's not worried that Herod is looking for him. He says a prophet can't perish outside of Jerusalem. He knows exactly where that cross is going to be. But then when he, just the mention of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those that are sent to you. How often I have called to you to gather you together like a, like a mother hen does with their chicks, but, but you would not. And look now, your house is made desolate. He he sees the destruction and he called into the city to avoid the, the destruction. I, I'm here to save you. I'm here to rescue you. Destruction is coming. And, uh, and they would have no part of the rescue. They would have no part of the salvation. And he sees the consequence of rejecting salvation, of rejecting the rescue is destruction. And he weeps uh, over that. He laments over the, the loss of life. God's heart is that he wills that none should perish and that all should come to everlasting life. Christ came to save everybody that would receive uh, his rescue. And, and he's come with this giant rescue vehicle called the church and said, climb in and, uh, and be saved. And they would not. I think of the people on the news that you watch and, and here is this massive forest fire that's coming and the rescuers are there, the fire and the police go and they say, you have to evacuate now. You need to get out now. There is a wall of fire that is coming and we cannot stop it and you need to leave. The roads out this way are clear. You cannot go that way. You cannot get through that fire. You need to take the most important things, get in your car and go now. And they come and they tell them. And you see him standing there with a garden hose. <laughs> no, we're going to stay. We're good. And they're like, no, you can't. You cannot stay. You have no idea the size of this fire that is coming. It is going to melt everything that is around you. And they say, no, this is our house, and, and we're going to stay. And, and they go on to warn the others, and to warn the others, and to warn the others. And that destruction comes, and it just destroys them. And the senseless loss, you wouldn't listen we told you. We came to rescue you. We showed you the way out, and you wouldn't take it. And how frustrating and sad that is. And that is God's heart, is there is destruction that is coming that is far greater than a forest fire. It's eternal fire. And come, get out now. 
And I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've been sent here to rescue you, and there's no other way. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he just laments. As we come here to this 14th chapter, we're going to see that Jesus is invited to, a, to the house of a, of a Pharisee. But, a leader of Pharisees, actually. And, and we see that the Pharisees and Jesus have had an antagonistic relationship with one another because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are upset that Jesus will not validate them. If you were to ask a Jew who's the most spiritual person that you know, who's the most religious, who's the most holy person, if someone was to ask you who's the most spiritual person in your family that you know and you, and you have a mind, you can think of somebody, you say, oh, they're... Um, they're the one. Well, if you were Jewish, you would say a Pharisee. I mean, their whole life was dedicated to the keeping of the law. <clears throat> there wasn't anybody that was more, more committed, more zealous, and, except the Pharisee. But Jesus didn't validate that and say, hey, how wonderful you are. <laughs> Instead, he says, you bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> and they're mad at him for him calling them out. And, uh, and they're mad at him because he wouldn't keep all of their traditions and Jesus kept the law, but he didn't keep the man-made traditions that they added on top of the law. And so they were mad at him for that. And so he's going to come to the house of a Pharisee, and, and we're going to see the exchange that is going to take place. And there's going to be a sick person that is there at the house as a guest, and it's the Sabbath, of course. And so we're going to see what happens in that exchange. And then Jesus is going to give a parable. He's going to give a parable about the sin of pride about pride. God hates sin, amen? I mean, he hates all sin. Sin is just a stench in the nostrils of a holy, righteous, perfect God. And every single sin just is horribly stinky in the nostrils of God. But if you were to ask me, which you didn't, but I'm going to answer it anyways. <laughs> if you were to ask me, is there a sin that God hates more than all the other sins? I would say to you, in my own opinion, yes. I would say pride is the one sin that God hates above every other sin. And the reason that I would say that is because it was the very first sin that marred his creation. It was the very first sin that stained now and corrupted his creation. And it entered in right in heaven through his worship leader, Lucifer. And as Lucifer was leading the worship for God, he began to become puffed up with pride, and he suddenly wanted to be the object of worship and not just lead the worship. And, and so he used his influence and his position to lead a rebellion against God and got a third of the angels to come and to back him. We're going to replace God and install a new thing. I'm going to run things, and it's going to be better. He got a third of the angels to back him, and... Pride, so dangerous, so treacherous, so abhorrent to God. And when he looked at these religious leaders, man, they were filled with pride. And so he's going to warn us about that in this parable. And so let's jump in here. Luke's gospel, chapter 14, begins in verse 1. And it says, Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him how? 
closely. So can you imagine being invited to a meal and everyone's just watching you closely? You know, they're all watching uh, him closely. And, and we see the, uh, the relationship of Jesus with the Pharisees and, and how oppositional that was. So it's interesting that he has been invited by a Pharisee to have dinner with them. Jesus will always, I never see Jesus refuse an invitation. He will meet with a person wherever they are willing to, to meet at whatever level. And even though this was probably not an honest, authentic invitation, it was more of a, a setup than it was, Jesus will start with any entry point that you will give him, and he will build off of that, and he will try and work from that point forwards in your life. So, so he agrees to go over, and, and this isn't the first Pharisee's house that he's, <laughs> that he's been in. He, he ate at two other Pharisees' house that Luke recorded for us in chapter 7, also in chapter 11, and, and in both of those, they didn't really go all that well. <laughs> in the first one, you'll remember that that Jesus is there and this broken woman comes in. She's a woman of ill repute. She's a woman whose reputation far preceded her. And she comes in just, just broken, just sick over her life and her lifestyle, the things that she's involved in. And, and how did she get there? How did a life get so broken? You know, as children, I think that we all start with the dream of happily ever after, right? I mean, we're all, we all are chasing the, the happily ever after, but decisions and influences and circumstances and, uh, and, and maybe tragic things that happen to her and as a result, and different decisions and, and on the sequence of events in her life. And her life is anything but happily ever after. And she comes in just broken. Just, just broken. And she comes in and falls at his feet, and she just starts weeping, just weeping over her life, over the Lord, over everything. And, and her tears are just falling, and she just washes his feet with those tears and dries them with her hair. And she's brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she anoints it his head and his feet, and she's kissing his feet. And she's just broken before the Lord. And, and the Pharisee, rather than seeing the brokenness of this woman's life, judges Jesus. And in his heart, he says, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her anywhere near him. He got him anywhere near him. Not a holy man. Jesus sees in his heart the judgment against him. And he, and he says to the Pharisee, he says, there's two debtors. One owed a great debt, another a small debt. And both of them were forgiven. Which one loves more? And he says, oh, the one that was forgiven, great debt. He says, you've answered rightly. He says, when I came into your house, he says, you didn't even give me the customary kiss. Just the greeting of a guest. He says, and she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I've been here. He says, you didn't wash my feet. Customary of a guest coming into your house that you would remove the sandals 
in the house, and then they would have a, a basin of water because the dust and the dirt of the road, and just a quick rinse of the dust off of your feet, and, and that was customary hospitality to an honored guest. He says, you didn't wash my feet when I came in. He says, and she hasn't, she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And anointed me with oil. You didn't anoint me with oil when I came in. It was customary to a guest coming in that you'd dab them with some fragrant oil and refresh them with their feet, welcome them with a kiss. She didn't dab him with oil. She brought her most precious possession of the alabaster flask and poured the whole thing on his head and on his feet. So she has loved greatly. And he turns to her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And we see this incredible restoration of new life. I love that about God. That no matter how tragic your life has been up to this point, that you can receive Christ and you know what? You're given a whole new life. You're a new creation. Every sin washed away as far as the east is from the west. And the robe of righteousness, Christ's righteousness is put on you. You're a daughter now. You're a princess of the king of kings and of the Lord of lords. And you have eternal life. And for every single person, we can have that fresh start, that new beginning in Christ. We see that the other time that he is at a Pharisee's house, he said, Simon, the Pharisee's house. And do you remember that, uh, that he is offended? He's offended at Jesus because Jesus doesn't wash his hands the way that they do with all of their ceremonial cleansing. And he sits down to eat. And once again, he's judged by this Pharisee. And Jesus says, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. You spend so much time worried about the outside of the vessel, but the inside of the vessel is rotting. It's rotting. You have no connection to God. You have no relationship with God, but everything that you do is external in your life. He says, you are like graves that are freshly painted and, and they are whitewashed. Man, they look so nice. Everything looks good, freshly painted. But what's inside? Dead men's bones rotting. That's what's inside. That's what you're like. And then the lawyers, you remember, the, the lawyers are like, hey, 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 wait a minute now. By condemning them, you're condemning us also. And Jesus had a few woes for the lawyers as well. And I don't think that dinner went really well, you know. I'm not sure how the rest of that meal went. But now Jesus is invited, listen to this, to a leader of the Pharisees. Now he's moved up in the ranks, and now a leader of the Pharisees wants him over there. And it's on the Sabbath. And so we see that Jesus accepts, and they're all watching him closely. And, and you know what that spoke to me also, how the world is watching us closely? There's nothing more trying, I think, than to be uh, underneath a, a constant and critical scrutiny. And when you're underneath constant and, and critical scrutiny, I, I think that sometimes you can lose your nerve, you can, you can come underneath a compression, you can sometimes even lose your, your temper. But 
It is always a constant reminder that our lives are the epistle that some people, that's the only Bible they're ever going to read, is the epistle of your life. They're, they're watching you. And in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. And you see, we live out our faith in front of the world, and, and they are watching, and they are watching. I was in the car just a couple days ago, and, and I was late, and I was bringing my son to, to work. He was actually late. Just, and so I'm trying to get him to work, and we're down on Stephanie. We're trying to turn into the store. We have to make a left turn across Stephanie where, where all the traffic is. And there's a person that's in front of me, and they're, and they're in front of me. They have to make the left turn, and then I can go behind them. And, and on Stephanie by the mall and all the traffic, so you know, once those lights let the green light go in the direction, you can be sitting there for a long time waiting for a break in the action to try and make a left turn across and and the road was clear and the cars now were starting to come and I don't know if she was on her cell phone or if she was just sleeping you know or whatever but it's like go 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 you know what I'm saying I'm encouraging her go 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 and she's and she's still time she's just sitting there and she's not going and and I'm like oh you know there's my horn I'm like ah uh, you know oh please please go 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 and she didn't go and I'm like okay just toot you know and I'm like oh my goodness you know and so Oh, you know, and I, I, and, I, and I got across and, you know, and so, you know, and so uh, I said to my son afterwards, I'm like, you know, uh, as we finally make the left turn, she goes, I just barely uh, got in front. I might have cut somebody off, I'm not sure. But <laughs> got across, barely. We're getting in the, the parking lot and I get into her and I says, I, I hate using my horn. This is, you know, I hate using my horn. I try and never use my horn under any circumstances. I try and not use my horn. So I told my son, I said, oh, I hate using my horn. He's like, why, Dad? It's a horn. It's, it's there to let people know that you're here, you know, and to, and to honk. I said, no, I'd rather be just long-suffering and just give the person time, you know, to just miss the light if I have to, you know. I said, because I never want to be honking and have someone from the congregation look back. That's the pastor who just honked at me. <laughs> Uh, there, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, what's worse than getting honked at by your, you know, by your angry pastor in the back, you know, and so I'm like, okay, I'm like, never want to honk at anybody, you know, and stuff, but I, but I honked and I felt bad, you know, and, and if that was you that I honked at, I do want to apologize, uh, okay, right now, but also I just want you to know that if that was you that I did honk at, you need to repent of the gesture that you gave uh, back to, to me. Okay, at my heart. Just saying, okay, that, that that's going to be between you and the Lord, okay, on, on that one there. But, but, but our lives, our lives are the epistle that, that people are watching and that and people are looking at. And they were looking at Jesus and they were scrutinizing him and they were looking for him to make mistakes so that they could call him out. And it says in verse 2, and, and behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now, Luke is not only a historian, the author of this, but he's also a doctor. And he lets us know exactly what this person has. There's a sick person that's been invited to this meal, to this dinner party. Why is a sick person invited to a dinner party? I'm not sure. 
Was that authentic or was that a setup? It's the Sabbath, and, and here is this sick person. Luke tells us what it was. It was dropsy. Dropsy in the original language means watery of the face. It, means, it talks about a swelling. The person was all swollen, and so edema. And now there are several different causes for edema. Edema is, uh, is common with heart conditions, liver conditions, kidney conditions. All of these things can cause when the body is not processing, the fluid starts to retain it, and you start to swell up. But here is this person that is sick. They're swollen, and they're there, and it's the Sabbath, and, and everybody's watching Jesus. And Jesus, verse 3, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He turns right to the Pharisees and says, Let me, I just want to ask you a question. This person's sick over here, and, and I can help him. Is it all right if I help him? Is it okay? Are you going to be offended if I, if I heal him? if I take care of them, if I bless them, if I deliver them from the affliction that they're in, is that all right? Or, or are you going to be upset with that? And so he asks them that question, point blank, directly. And look at what their answer was. In verse 4, but they kept what? Silent. They weren't going to answer him. Can I heal him or, or not? Are you going to be mad at me if I bless your guest or not? Let me know. And they wouldn't answer. They refused to show compassion on their own dinner guest. And so Jesus was moved with compassion. He's always moved with compassion. He sees every hurt that you have in your life and he hurts for you. He has compassion upon every pressure that you're going through, every difficulty, every hardship uh, the Lord sees in. And so it says here that he took him and healed him and let him go. He blesses him, heals him. Oh my goodness, the man is made whole. And then he answered them, saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? There were open wells that were common in Israel and the animals would fall or the pits and the ditches or the ledges and their animal, that's their livestock. Man, they took good care of their livestock and if one of their donkey, their oxes got in a trouble, man, in the New York second, it's the Sabbath or any other day, they're going to jump in and help their animal. And you know what? Nobody had a problem with that. But you weren't allowed to help a person on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, do you see the hypocrisy of this? That you are outlawing kindness to humans who are made in the image and likeness of God, but you haven't outlawed kindness to animals. You're allowed to treat animals better on the Sabbath than you are people. That's how you have twisted up these traditions and have gotten to where you are. And it was a blind spot to the religious leaders they were just chasing the rules and continuing to compete with one another through the rules. And, and it's interesting about blind spots when you're driving, how you have that one blind spot. A car can be very close to you, right on your flank, and in your side mirror, in your rear view, and you can't see it, but it's right there. And that's what this was, this giant blind spot that they had. 
And Jesus exposes that to them. And in verse 6 it says, And they could not answer him regarding these things. Jesus' logic is just so simple, so true. Couldn't even be disputed. They just didn't even have an answer for him. And Jesus goes on now to tell a parable. He says, So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, <laughs> saying to them. So whenever you come into a feast, whenever you're coming to a dinner party, it was always, they always had the seating chart. And everybody was seated according to status. And so there's the host, the left and the right hand of the host, and then next to the host, and two away from the host, and, and all the way down to the lowest seats that, that are there. So whenever you went over to eat, you knew exactly where you stood in the host's eyes with everybody else you know, that was around you. And, and there was always the big competition to make sure that you're trying to move up from the low seats to the, to the high seats. And you know, after every dinner party, it's like, did you see that? The Bernsteins, they were up two spaces. You know, last year we were ahead of them. And now, look, you need a new dress or something, you know, and, uh, and here. And so, you know, everything was about the, the social climbing and about the, the fighting with one another for what? For status. For status. Who's above who? Who's got more status than, than anybody else? And that's what they were so concerned with, so concerned what other people thought. Other people were putting you in, in the pecking order. And Jesus says that when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, verse 8, do not sit down in the best place lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. Now remember that he's sitting where he's in the house of the leader, one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And so, you know, the Pharisees were always wanting to be honored, to be looked at by everybody, to be thought that they were such holy people. And so the leader of the Pharisees now expecting also to be recognized. And, and so he says, don't go and expect the best in place. He says, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. He says, but when you're invited, go. And sit down in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you and comes, he may say to you, friend, Go up higher, and then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. And so what Jesus was saying is this. Don't promote yourself. Let God exalt you. You go and just bless others. And as you are focused on others, then God is going to exalt you. But if you go focused on yourself and are trying to promote yourself and exalt yourself in this life, then then God is going to humble you and take you down. That's pride, that, that desire to be better than everybody else, to have uh, climbed higher than everybody else by the standards of whatever standards, the world or, uh, or the fictitious construction of, of man. But God's not impressed with any of that. God's not impressed with any of that. You see, we're here to seek God's glory, not our own glory. And so we're either seeking the glory of the kingdom or we're seeking ourself. And it's one or the other. And Jesus is saying, seek God's glory. That's eternal. <laughs> and your glory is going to waste time. You're going to become puffed up. You're going to become prideful. And you're not going to be useful in the kingdom. And so, verse 11, he says... 
For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the host is God himself, and he's going to make the final seating arrangements in the kingdom of God. Amen? And he's going to exalt the humble. And then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. So he says, hey, you know, when you give to get, he says, that's not really giving, by the way. When, when you're giving and you're expecting something back, that's called an investment that you want to return uh, on. When you're inviting people so they then will invite you and you're trying to pick all the people and all of that, that's not really, you're not throwing a feast. It's a self-promotion party is what's happening there. He says that's not loving people. That's loving yourself and using generosity as a way of promoting yourself. He says, true giving, true loving is when you don't expect anything back. When just the act of loving is its own reward. And you do that when there isn't anything that's coming back. He says, you'd have to throw a feast and invite the, the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. I think that's called the marriage supper of the lamb. Where the maimed, the lame, the poor, and the blind are are all welcome now into the kingdom of God. And then he went on to say, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Just the act of blessing is the blessing. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God is the one who will reward at the resurrection of the just. We're going to store up our treasure in heaven. We're going to love people here. We're going to seek God's glory and not our own. And that's what he was saying to the religious leaders. Lead the people in that direction, not in this competition that you're having with each other for self-promotion. But he says here the, the resurrection of the just, and that's where I want to land, and that's what I want to close on, is the resurrection of the just. How exciting that is. That's the, the resurrection of the just. Is a, it, immediately what follows that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And how glorious that is, how heaven is the hope for each and every one of you. There's two resurrections. There's the resurrection of the wicked and the resurrection of the just. And so the resurrection of the just is the first resurrection. That's the resurrection that you want to be a part of. You do not want to be a part of the second resurrection. Now, the first resurrection actually was Jesus himself. He was the firstborn over the resurrection. And so you'll remember that when he went into the grave, and when he came out, he had his resurrected body. Now, his resurrected body went through a metamorphosis. He was translated. His body was translated into a new body. His old body was a, 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 a terrestrial body. It was made out of the, uh, the dirt and uh, out of the elements of the earth and and it was temporary but when he came out of the grave he had this new body he had this resurrection body and the resurrection body is a celestial body and celestial body that is now meant for all eternity and 
And it was really cool. It had different aspects. His body had new and different aspects to it. We, we could identify him. We could recognize him. But also, uh, he was able to not be recognizable uh, as well. Uh, but then also, he was able to walk right through walls and, and through doors. That's going to be awesome. You know, just, whoop, I don't have to open and close the door anymore. Just walk through the wall, you know. And He could appear and disappear. He could be touched. So uh, there was a tangible aspect uh, to him when he wanted to. He could eat. He ate food. And, and so, uh, so amazing aspects of this new body. And, and that is all part of the, the resurrection. So when Jesus went into the grave, he went down into Sheol. And Sheol, or Hades, that's where everybody who died uh, was now in Sheol. And there were two compartments in it. One is Abraham's bosom. That was a place of comfort. That was for everybody who died in faith. And then there was the other side uh, that was uh, separated by uh, a chasm. And over there, those were all of the people who are reserved for judgment. And so whenever a person died, they died in faith. They went over to Abraham's bosom. But they couldn't come into the presence of God. They couldn't go into heaven yet. And the reason why is that they still had their souls stained with sin. See, Jesus' blood, he's the Lamb of God, and their blood of Jesus is what washes away a person's sin from their soul. And so they had to wait for the Lord now to, uh, to come down. And so he washed all of their souls, and then he resurrected into his resurrected body. But they didn't get resurrected. They just got led out uh, of Sheol, uh, out of Abraham's bosom. And then the Lord, when he ascended, he took all of those that were in captivity, he took them captive and brought them now into heaven. So today in Hades, there's an empty compartment that's down there called Abraham's bosom, and there's nobody in there. Today, if a believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why can we go straight into heaven? We don't have to go into Abraham's because uh, our soul has been washed of, of its sin. And so we can enter into the, uh, the presence of God. And, and so they're all waiting for their resurrected bodies still. And when is the resurrected bodies going to happen? Well, that happens when the Lord returns at the rapture of the church. He comes back with all of those souls uh, with him. And it says that the dead in Christ will rise first. So their bodies, so see there's a connection with your resurrected body to your old body. Kind of uh, in some way, shape, or form, your body is the seed to the, uh, the eternal body that, that you will have. And and, I, you know, and all of us are going to get this celestial body. It's going to be different, have different properties than the physical body that we have now. And, and it's like, God, how, how does that work? You know, that's like, sounds so fantastic. And so God said, okay, I know that that's kind of crazy, but here's what I'll do. I will give you a, a, a demonstration of that in nature so that you can kind of understand exactly what's going to happen to you. And so he gave us the caterpillar. And so the caterpillar lives its life out in this little furry body that can crawls around on the ground. And then all of a sudden it goes into a, a cocoon. And that cocoon is the typology of death. And then it comes out of that cocoon and it's a butterfly. And it doesn't crawl around anymore. It flies and flaps around majestically going all over. And it's beautiful with all of its, its colorings. But it's connected to the caterpillar. 
that body, though it doesn't look or have anything like that other body, came out of that body through that process of the cocoon. And so also your body is going to become and turned into, I call it, your eternal body with all different completely principles. And it'll be made for the eternal state. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first. Christ will come back with all of those souls and they're going to be reconnected to their bodies and they're going to be translated, metamorphosized, the, uh, the complete change of the state of the body, metamorphosized into their resurrected body. And then we who are alive, it says, will be changed in an instant. Our bodies are then going to just be changed and we're going to be given our new bodies right then, right there. That's the option I'm voting for, by the way, right there, the, the rapture option. And, and then we are going to depart and be with Christ at where? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's the end of the church age. At that point, the church age ends in the rapture of the church and all the believers and everybody that died in faith is all going to go. We're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be the tribulation that is going on down here. That's the first resurrection, the first resurrection. We go to the Bema Seat of Rewards, and uh, where now we are blessed and honored uh, by the Lord, and we sit down as the bride of Christ. And, and then at the second coming, we're going to return with Christ and back to earth now, and there's going to be the judgment of the nations that will take place at the end of the tribulation period. And Satan is going to be taken and chained up for a thousand years, and and the resurrected saints are going to be the administration of Christ throughout the earth. There's going to be those people that survived the tribulation. They're going to keep repopulating the earth during that thousand-year period. And the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. And, and it is going to be a beautiful thousand-year reign underneath Christ's headship over the earth. And then Satan is going to be let out one last time. And he's going to cause some trouble and lead a rebellion, and that's going to be squashed. And then there's going to be the great white throne in judgment. And that's when now everybody that's over on the other side of Hades is going to be brought in before, and they're going to be asked to give an account for their sin, and they're going to stand in their sin, guilty before God, and they are going to be eternally separated. And then God is going to destroy everything that's been marred by sin. He's going to destroy this earth and a new earth he's going to be created. He's going to destroy heaven because heaven was marred by sin. And a new heaven is going to be created. And we're going to enter into that glorious eternal state with God. There will be no sun or no moon for the light of God's glory is going to be the light there in heaven. We will dwell together. And Jesus came to rescue you to tell you that there is a fire that is roaring up that, uh, that will destroy you for eternity. And you need to take my hand right now and come with me and I will rescue you. <laughs> and you will be a part of the first uh, resurrection. You will spend all eternity with me. Don't stay behind. You will be consumed. I am telling you this. I rose from the dead. I know what I am talking about. Please listen to me. I am the door. There is no other way. Please save your soul. And he pleads with every single person, please save your soul. Save your soul.
And today as we close our service, that's the invitation that he is giving to you right now. There is a fire of eternal judgment that is coming. And we don't know when it's going to hit here because no man knows the, the day or the, the hour or the end of their life. And, and your life could be required of you tomorrow. And, and if so, then that fire is going to be here tomorrow for you. But today is the day that you can take the most precious thing you have, your soul, and get on board with the Lord and be rescued and be saved from eternal destruction. And so as we close right now, I just want to invite anybody. Christ's hand is reaching out to you right now. And he's asking you, come, be rescued, be saved. We saw him lament over Jerusalem, and Jesus will lament over you if you choose destruction. But he's here to rescue you and to save you and to tell you the reality of these things. And all you need to do is to stand up and come and receive your salvation, just go with the rescuer <laughs> and be delivered and be saved. And so uh, as Joe worships and uh, as we pray, if that's you, if you've never understood the severity and the reality of these things, then right now is your time. Stand up. Don't wait one more second. You stand up and you come to the front and at the end, I'll lead you in a prayer. And if that's you today, and if God is trying to rescue you today, take his hand jump up and come down to the front now. Now is your time to be delivered. Come and come receive Christ. just as you are. Won't you hear the Spirit call? Come just as you are. Come and Come and live forever. Come just as you are. Won't you hear the Spirit call? Come just as you And taste the living water and never thirst again. Life everlasting and strength for today. Taste the living water and never thirst again. And Father, we thank you. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for sending the rescuer to us. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to depart from your glory in heaven and to come down here into the muck and mire of this world. 
and to extend your hand to each and every one of us, to pull us out, to wash us and cleanse us, and clothe us with your righteousness and make us the bride of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us, that you willingly laid down your life to save us. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would continue to help us to learn how to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, to continue to love you and to love others, to seek your glory and not our own glory. And Father, to be used as your instruments here to love others. So Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.